good to see you all. Hey, I, I want to start tonight uh, by, by stating the obvious, um, and that is this. Sometimes things in life don't always go as we expect them to. Um, you know, and, and, and now sometimes, admittedly, when unexpected things happen in our lives, it's fine. It's not a problem. It's okay. But sometimes, sometimes unexpected things are really hard, right? I, I want to share um, a, a story. It's a personal story. It's about my family. Some of you guys uh, have heard this before. I've heard parts of it. Some of you know it because you know me well, but a lot of you probably don't. Um, but I think it connects with what we're talking about tonight, and so I'm going to share it. Um, it's a little bit long, so hang with me. About a year and a half ago, uh, my wife, Noelle, and I were sitting down for dinner. Uh, it was a Friday evening. Uh, we were very much looking forward, at least I was very much looking forward to uh, a great dinner and hanging out with Noelle for the evening. Um, and, and we're sitting down, and, and I look across the table, and, and I notice that Noelle's crying. It's never a great thing when you sit down for dinner. And so the first thing that starts going through my mind is, uh-oh, what did I do? Um, and then being the good husband that I am, I'm like, you know, hey, I noticed that you're crying. Is everything okay? Well, of course it's not okay. Right? Of course it's not okay. She's crying. Um, you know, so uh, there's, there's a long pause, right? There's a long pause. She's sitting there. It's actually somewhat awkward at this point because I'm like, okay, say something. And she says, hey, I've got something that I need to tell you. Now, newsflash, when your wife is crying and she looks at you in your eyes and says, hey, I have something to tell you, that's, that's not a good thing either. Um, and after another long pause, uh, an awkward pause, uh, the words come out of her mouth, I'm pregnant. Now, uh, that's normally an exciting thing, and I suppose I should say for uh, my son, if he ever hears this story someday, I want to be on record as saying his mother wasn't crying because we didn't want him. Uh, his mother wasn't crying because we didn't want more kids. We for sure did. Uh, but the reason that Noel was crying is because the timing of this particular pregnancy, this is our third pregnancy, uh, was completely unexpected. And that was true in a lot of ways. Uh, but one of the ways that it was true, primarily true, was that about two months from that night, uh, Noel and I and our two little girls, Billy and Lucy, were supposed to hop on an airplane uh, to fly across the world to Japan to stay for two months. Uh, with Project Japan, leading our Project Japan team, which, shameless plug, if you're interested in, we're going to talk about in two weeks. So stay tuned. Uh, you know, so we had been before, right? Noelle and I had been before. We'd taken Lily uh, several years ago. Um, the second year we started going to Japan, it's a place that we love. It's a place that we have a lot of great family memories. Um, and so we were thrilled to be going back. We couldn't wait to get back. And so for months and months, we're planning, we're preparing, we're getting ready to leave this trip, and we've got to raise a lot of support, we've got to buy plane tickets, we've got to get housing accommodations together, this, that, and the other. It's all taken care of, but the whole time we're doing this, we're not doing it with the expectation that we'll be there pregnant. It was for sure unexpected for us. And suddenly, the, the realization in that dinner kind of hit, it started to sink in, there's a great chance that we aren't going to go. All these months of planning, preparation, it might be for naught. We weren't sure if doctors were going to let us go if we, were, if we were pregnant. We weren't sure if we even wanted to go uh, if we were pregnant. Um, but like I said, the news was unexpected. And, and it was hard. And, and anytime unexpected news hits and it's hard, it's easy for your mind to start spinning. You know, God, why? What, 
what God are you doing? Why is this happening? Why now? To make matters worse, about a week later, we're at a doctor's appointment uh, to find out you got to go and actually get, you know, to confirm you're pregnant. Um, and uh, at that doctor's appointment, we actually found out that uh, Noelle had a small blood clot between the baby and her uterus. Now we were for sure unsure whether or not we'd be going to Japan. A few weeks passed by, um, and we actually get some good news. Uh, a subsequent doctor's appointment um, gives us a little hope, not just for Japan, but for the baby's health, uh, because we find out that that blood clot that was there in the initial doctor's appointment, um, it, it had disappeared, dissolved, uh, the baby looked healthy, which was great. Doctors, uh, all that we talked to, were fine with us going to Japan. And so, for the next few days, Noel and I spent... Um, you know, talking about it, praying about it, talking to friends, people that knew us well. Should we go? Should we not? If we don't, what's going to happen to our team? What's going to happen to the trip? But eventually we got to a point of saying, you know, we feel like God is really leading us still to lead this trip. It was the right decision for us. We were pretty at peace with it. And so we decided to go. We had no reason not to, um, aside from the baby growing in our stomach. Um, and so we went. Um, and we thought everything was going to be okay. Fast forward about four days after we land in Tokyo. It was, a, it was an early morning, and out of nowhere, unexpectedly, Noelle starts experiencing some, some pretty hard pain and some bleeding. And, and so we found an English-speaking urgent care, and that's where they gave us the news. That blood clot that we thought was gone uh, was actually still there. And, and they put a picture up on the wall, they kind of projected um, a sonogram picture for us, and the blood clot wasn't just there, it was actually larger than our baby was. Doctors were pretty apprehensive, pretty nervous. Um, they told us that this was actually a pretty dangerous thing. Um, they gave us some pretty hard news. They said, hey, we just want to prepare you that there's a great chance that you're going to have a miscarriage here. Um, and then they say, you know, if, if you don't have a miscarriage, uh, there's probably a pretty good chance that, that at the very least you're going to have this baby early. And um, because of that, um, Noelle needed to spend the next two months that we were in Japan, supposed to be leading a team of eight Veritas students. She needed to be spending the summer resting. That was the only thing that they said might help delay the inevitable rest. No real walking, which is a bummer because you walk everywhere in Japan. Can't spend much time in a car, can't spend much time on a train because the bumps might induce labor. Can't do any heavy lifting. She couldn't even lift her little girls. Now, when you tell a mom that she can't pick up her, her own kids, that, that's a hard thing. It was a hard thing for me as her husband to watch her deal with. So here we are in Japan. We're away from family. We're away from our friends, we're away from the comforts of home, we're away from our normal doctors, we were away from our team. Our team hadn't got there yet, we, we go over typically about a week early to let our kiddos adjust, it's a 14 hour time difference. Um, and so we're kind of alone. Um, and so as you can imagine, we're kind of on this roller coaster of emotion, right? We're scared, we're anxious, we're frustrated, we're sad, we're confused. We feel alone. We feel helpless. This is not what we expected. And so then the questions start coming again. God, why? Why this? Why now? 
I mean, after all, we thought this is what you wanted us to do. We thought that we were coming to a place to serve you, to a place that desperately needs to hear the gospel. Japan is one of the least reached nations in the world when it comes to Christianity. We were just trying to be faithful. Why did this happen? How are we going to get through it? You see, I'll be honest, those first few days that we were in Tokyo that summer were some of the hardest days of my life. Well, eventually, and I say eventually, and, and for a very brief time, uh, things got better. Uh, we, we ended up seeing other doctors, subsequent visits, uh, and, and they kind of gave us some of the same news that we heard once before. Hey, it actually looks like this thing's shrinking, this thing's getting better. So we thought, great news, right? Great news. Maybe the worst is behind us. But it wasn't. See, fast forward uh, through the whole summer, two weeks after we get back. We're in Columbia. It's a Sunday morning about 4 a.m. It's actually the Sunday of Veritas's kickoff barbecue in the fall of 2015. 4 a.m., Noelle starts experiencing everything she did in Tokyo, pain, bleeding. This time we didn't go to an urgent care, we go to an ER. This time it was far more serious. Shortly after we checked in, after they ran some tests, they came to us and they said, hey, we need to prepare you guys. There's a really good chance that you're going to have this baby today. Normally, that's an okay thing. Except in this case, Jack, our son, was only 27 weeks old, which is about three and a half months premature. If you know anything about kids, that's incredibly dangerous. The doctors, they sent other doctors in to say, you know what? If he comes, there's not, there's a chance that he might not make it. This is not what we were expecting. You know, and if I'm really honest, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Things weren't looking good. Our hope was fading. It was unbelievably hard for Noel and I. I'm going to stop this story there for now. Why do I share that? Why do I share it? It's kind of a heavy story to start, you know, a Tuesday night talk. Why share that? Well, I'm not sharing that because I want you to start feeling bad for me, right? That's not my point. I'm not sharing that story about something pretty personal in my life to make you feel bad um, for Noel and I. Rather, I'm sharing it because I want you to know that if anyone knows what it's like to go through really hard circumstances in life, and not even that my circumstances are, have been the hardest by any means, but if, if anybody has gone through something pretty hard in life and can identify and relate, it's, it's me. It's Noel And I would imagine in a room the size, you know, the amount of people in here that, that I'm not the only one that has had to go through hard things in life. What was it for you? What happened really unexpectedly in your life that you weren't ready for? That was hard. Maybe some of you are going through that really hard thing right now. How do we get through it? How do we, how do we handle those times? If you were here last week at Veritas, um, you heard Keith Simon uh, say something um, that, that, at least for me, I haven't stopped thinking about. If you weren't here, check this sermon out on our website because it's great. We put all of our talks online. Um, but he said this. He says... In order to enter into the kingdom of God, every one of us will go through hardships. Every one of us will go through hardships. In other words, if you follow Jesus, you should expect hardship in your life. You should expect difficulty. You should expect suffering. 
That's not an easy thing. And I wonder if because it's hard, if we actually believe it. I mean, do we really believe that following Jesus means that our life isn't always going to go the way that we want it to? The way that we expect it to? See, I'll be the first to admit that far too often I expect that my life is going to go smoothly just because I'm a Christian. And so when hardship comes my way, I'm shocked, I'm saddened, I'm surprised. Maybe you can relate. But if anything, for me, key sermon last week reminded me that following Jesus means that unexpected things are going to happen in my life. And even more, unexpected things sometimes are going to be really difficult. And so the question for all of us, the question tonight, is what sustains us when that hardship comes? What sustains us in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of our suffering? See, if it's true that we should expect the unexpected, what prepares us for that? What gets us through it? These same questions weren't foreign to Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. Um, Because as it turns out, following Jesus was, was far more difficult than they expected to be. It wasn't what they thought it would be at all. There's this pivotal moment in Mark chapter 8, passage right before we're reading tonight, where, where Jesus is talking to his buddy Peter. And he, and he looks at Peter and he says, hey, Peter, who, who do you say that I am? Now, if you know anything about Peter, you know oftentimes Peter says some pretty bonehead things. And he kind of says something silly even tonight in the passage that we looked at. But in this particular moment, Peter actually gets it right. Because Peter hears Jesus' question and he looks at him and he says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the king. And because you're the king, that's really great news. It's really great news for me. It's really great news for your buddies. Because what that means for us is that you're the king and you've got power. And so because we're your close friends, that means we must get power too. And we're going to be a big deal in your kingdom someday. But just when Jesus declares that he is indeed the king, he does something unexpected. He says, yeah, you're right. I am the king. And because I'm the king, I have to die. Oh yeah, by the way, if you want to follow me, you do too. Wait, what? I mean, imagine the disciples. What? We have to die? You're going to die? What? What's all this dying going on? That's not what we signed up for. Um, maybe you've seen the Old Spice commercial. It's one of my favorite commercials. Terry Crews, he's, he's talking about something probably ridiculous, but his brain literally comes up out of his head and it kind of hovers in front of his face and just explodes, right? That's exactly what's going on right here. Surely what Jesus is saying to his disciples must have been mind-blowing in the worst possible way. Jesus, you're going to die? We thought you were the king. We thought you were the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, the one we've been expecting. How is that possible if you're going to die? See, it's not what the disciples expected at all. That Jesus would die, that that they would have to die, that that had to be an incredibly tough pill to swallow. No doubt it was significantly discouraging. And so how did the disciples handle this kind of twist in the story? This unexpected news, this difficult news in their lives. Well, what's interesting is that initially the disciples do nothing. Jesus does something. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 9. Verses 2 through 10. 
After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Okay, so what happens? What happened then? Let's unpack it just a bit. Six days, six days later, six days after Jesus gives his buddies some hard, unexpected news. He takes three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, he takes them up a mountain, right? And he's not just taking them on a hike. He's not just taking them on a scenic trip. No, he, he's taking them because he knows that he needs to do something for them. Why? Well, I think Jesus knows that his friends are bombed. I think Jesus knows that the message that he gave to his friends left them confused. It left them anxious. What was going to happen to them? What was going to happen to their future? And so Jesus takes these guys up the mountain because he knows that he needs to do something to encourage them. He wants to do something that encourages them, that comforts them. And so what exactly does he do? Mark tells us that before the disciples, Jesus is transfigured. He's changed. He's transformed. And so his radiance, his splendor, his glory, it's all on display for his disciples to see. You see, Jesus in that moment gives his friends a brief glimpse of his glory. Something far different and yet far better than they expected. Because it was an experience that changes their lives forever. But to help us understand the transfiguration, there's a lot that we could say, but, but a little bit of help. We need to briefly go back several hundred years to the book of Exodus. Because in Exodus, a similar thing happens, but to a different God. See, in Exodus, it's, it's a book of the Old Testament. There's a story, a true story, where God comes down on a mountain in a cloud. And he comes down to speak to his people, to speak to Israel. And when he speaks from the cloud, people tremble with fear. It's an experience so terrifying that Israel needed a mediator to stand between them and God. And so this mediator that they choose is a guy named Moses. And as the story goes on, there's a point where Moses is talking to God, and he, and he pleads with God. He says, God, just, just let me see your glory. But God says, sorry, you can't. At least not fully. Because if you do, if you see me in all of my glory, you will die. You see, God says that nobody can see his face and live. And so rather than letting, see, letting Moses see his glory in totality. God gives him just a brief glimpse. And a brief glimpse is all that Moses needs because later when he's going back down the mountain, Exodus tells us that his face is shining with the reflected glory of God for all of Israel to see. Just a brief glimpse of God's glory and Moses' face is reflecting it for everyone to see. 
But in Mark 9, the passage we're looking at tonight, something's different. Something different is happening, and, and that difference is actually really key. You see, because Moses saw God, a glimpse of God's glory, and as a result, he reflects it. He reflects it just like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus in Mark 9, he doesn't reflect the light of God's glory at all. No, he produces it. It emanates from him. In other words, Jesus doesn't point to God's glory. He is the glory of God. And so that's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, for, for the majority of Jesus' life, his glory is veiled, right? We've talked about this a lot this semester. Jesus is God, and yet he, he chooses to sleep in an animal trough as an infant. Jesus is God, and yet he chooses to live in a tiny, insignificant town. Jesus is God, and yet for the majority of his life, he works as a carpenter. That's all changed now. That's all changed in Mark chapter 9 because on top of a mountain with three of his closest friends, the veil of Jesus' glory finally comes off. And for a brief moment, all of his glory, all of his radiance, all of his splendor, all of his majesty, it's on full display. Just after that, a great cloud appears over them covers them on the mountain, and then a voice from the cloud says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. See, that, that, the question that we've been asking all semester, if you've been coming to Veritas, you've heard this almost every week. Who is Jesus? Mark chapter 9 says it's not a question anymore. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. God says, this is my son Listen to him. And so the question for us, do we listen to Jesus? Do we listen to him? Or if we're honest, do we often listen to something or someone else? You see, God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Despite our doubts, despite our skepticism, Jesus actually knows what's best for our lives. you believe that? If you hear Jesus, if you listen to Jesus, is it actually changing your life? How you live? Back to Peter. Peter's so caught off guard by everything that's happening on the mountain. Remember I said he says some pretty bonehead things. He just blurts out, Rabbi, it's great we're here. We should go ahead and build some shelters. Let's build some houses. We'll build one for you, and we'll build one for Moses, and we'll build one for Elijah. In other words, Peter's saying, hey, I kind of like this thing going on up here. Let's stay for a while. You see, but what Peter doesn't get, what he doesn't understand in that moment, is that Jesus can't possibly stay on top of that mountain with him. Suddenly Moses and Elijah and the cloud, they're all gone. Jesus can't stay on top of that mountain because Jesus has to go back down the mountain. Why? Because Jesus knows that he has to go to the cross. Jesus knows that the king has to die. And so why does 
Jesus let his disciples see his glory. Why does he do it now? Why does he do it like this? Why not some other way, some other time? Well, he does it because Jesus knows that his disciples have to go back down the mountain too. They too were going to have to face hardship. They too were going to have to face suffering. They too would face an increasingly hostile culture to the message that they were propagating. They too would face death. This is not what the disciples expected. This was unbelievably hard. And so how do they get the strength to face their impending suffering? How do they get the strength to face their sacrifice, their loneliness? What's going to sustain them, their faithfulness in the midst of their hardship? Where do we get the strength in the midst of our own hardships? Where do we get the strength to get through them? You see, maybe, maybe your hardship is anxiety. Maybe it's a, a self-class. Maybe it's a breakup. Maybe your hardship is singleness. Maybe your hardship is getting passed over for an internship, your parents' divorce, the loss of a friend. You see, we all have hardships, and whatever they are, what sustains us through them? You see, for the disciples, it was getting a glimpse of Jesus' glory, getting a glimpse of his radiance, of his splendor, of his majesty. You see, for that brief moment, they saw the king in all of his glory. And it was through this experience that Jesus assures them, I am God. I know what's coming is unexpected. I know it's hard, but you can trust me. You see, a glimpse of Jesus' glory gives them the strength that they'll need to endure to endure the long journey that lies ahead. What about us? What does Jesus' transfiguration mean for our lives? What can we learn? Well, there are a lot of things that we could say, but, but I want to focus for the, the rest of our time on, on just one point. And it's this, that Jesus' transfiguration before his disciples that day on that particular mountain, it means that our experience with Jesus is what ultimately will sustain us. What do I mean by that? What's interesting about this passage um, that we read tonight is that Peter already knows who Jesus is. He already knows that, that Jesus is God. Remember what I said earlier about him saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the King. Peter knew intellectually who Jesus was. He knew with his head. But Jesus knows that that's not enough. Jesus, is, Jesus knows that, that Peter and the disciples, they need more. They need to experience Jesus. They need to experience his glory. Because when they experience it, that's what would begin to change their heart. But the same is true for us. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he's an 18th century pastor, theologian. He, he gives a helpful illustration here, at least for me. He says, think about honey. Um, it's one thing to know that honey is sweet, Right? Someone tells you that honey is sweet, so you know that honey is sweet. You can, you can figure that out with your head. But it's altogether different when we actually taste honey, when we actually experience honey. You see, we can know that honey is sweet with our heads, but until we experience it, until we taste it, until we put it on our tongue and let it roll around in our mouth, we can't fully know what it tastes like, how sweet it is. 
See, the same thing is true with Jesus. It's one thing for us to know Jesus with our heads. It's one thing for us to know Jesus intellectually. It's one thing for us to know that Jesus is God. To know that he loves you. To know that he likes you. To know that he cares for you. To know that he forgives you. But it's altogether different when you actually experience that love. Experience that care. Experience that forgiveness. It's our experience with Jesus that sustains us. That changes it. Maybe you're sitting there wondering to yourself, okay, I, I get that you're talking about experiencing Jesus, but how do I do that? How do I get an experience with Jesus? How do I experience Jesus? What do I do? Are you telling me that I need to go on a mission trip? Are you telling me that I need to spend the summer at a Christian camp? Are you telling me that I need to go to some Jesus conference? Are you saying that that's what's going to change me? Is that what it means to experience Jesus? Is that what it means to be sustained by Jesus? Well, to that I would say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that those are great things. Really great experiences that shape our hearts, shape our loves, grow our love and affection for Jesus. Undoubtedly, these are the experiences that become anchors in our life for our faith. Moments in time that we can look back on, reflect on, be assured, be, have confidence that God is in fact working in our lives. These kinds of experiences are great things. Hear me say that. But also no. No, in the sense that a singular experience with Jesus is not the point. A singular experience with Jesus is not the point. That's because a singular experience with Jesus is not enough to sustain us. It's a great starting point. It's a great anchor. But it can't be everything. Think about it like this. Uh, the day that I proposed to my wife was um, the first day that I told her I loved her. Not because I hadn't figured it out up until then, um, or I was just holding out on her. We had, we had a thing worked out. We weren't going to say that to each other until we knew we wanted to marry each other. That was just something we decided to do. Now imagine for a second that, that that's the only time in my marriage that I ever told my wife that I loved her. Right? Six and a half years later, the only time I've ever said to Noelle, I love you, was the day that I proposed her. If, in that hypothetical scenario, we were still married, our marriage wouldn't be any good. Of course not, right? Is he saying I love you once? It's not enough. It's a great start, but it's something that I need to do over and over, and she needs to do over and over again to cultivate, to grow our relationship. That singular experience of saying I love you, it's not enough. A singular experience with Jesus, it's not going to change us. We need to experience Jesus over time. And how we do that over time is through a relationship with him. And so that's why you hear us talking about from up front all the time at Veritas, over and over again, the importance of regularly encountering Jesus. Cultivating a relationship with him through things like reading your Bible. When's the last time you read your Bible? When do you read your Bible? What, what, what time of the day? What, what part of the day do you read your Bible? Encountering Jesus through actively participating in a small group. Encountering Jesus through regularly worshiping with us on Tuesday nights, on Sunday mornings at church. Encountering Jesus through serving. Encountering Jesus individually and corporately through prayer. 
You see, these are all collective experiences that nourish and strengthen, they shape our hearts, and help our relationship with Jesus grow. For Peter, seeing Jesus' glory in the transfiguration was one of the defining experiences of his life. It became an anchor for him, an experience that led to more experiences, a relationship with him that sustained him through the unexpected hardships that he encountered the rest of his life. I'll stop here um, by going back to the story of my son. Um, see, my son that day that we checked into the ER, um, he wasn't born that day. He wasn't born that day that we went to the ER, the, the, the day that the doctors told us, um, hey, there's a great chance that he's going to be born today. In fact, um, he wasn't born for three months, which was fantastic. I mean, that, that's the best possible outcome for us because it meant that Jack... Um, was full term. But what that also meant is that for three days, because we didn't get any answers in between then, for three months, every day, Noel and I woke up wondering, our son going to make it? Every day for three months, Noel was on bed rest, either at the hospital or at our house. Every day for three months, our kids, our little girls, were confused why mommy wasn't there, or why she couldn't get off the couch, or why she couldn't pick them up. See, for three months, I was a mess. If you hear me then, I was, a, I was scattered, I was frazzled, trying to figure out how do I care for my wife, how do I be a good friend, how do I be a good dad, how do I have the energy to start this new job of helping co-direct Veritas? See, for three months, it felt... Way too much to handle. How do you do it? If you ask Noel, she would have her own things that she would say. How do we get through that? You see, my answer is not rocket science. The only thing that got us through that was Jesus. Jesus' promises. I am God. I know what's ahead. I know it's unexpected. I know it's hard. But you can trust me. You can trust me. I will sustain you. And he did. That's what got us through it. You see, I know what it's like to wake up in tears in the middle of the night because I'm so afraid of what's going to happen the next day. I know what it's like to feel completely helpless to fixing a problem. I know what it's like to have no other thing to do other than to cry out to God for help. I know what it's like to be so utterly exhausted that coming home from a day at work, I've got to literally sit in my car in my garage before I go into my house and pray that Jesus would give me the energy to play with my kids for two hours. I know what it's like to be in a constant state of worry and anxiety because of my circumstances. <laughs> I've got us through that. I've got us through it. Here's my answer. Where else could I go but Jesus? Jesus is the only thing that can sustain Noel and I when everything else felt like it was falling apart. And fortunately for us, by the grace of God, our son was born, like I said, completely healthy. You know, our experience it, it ended with good news. You know, in a lot of ways, that experience, that hardship has become one of those anchors, one of those things that we look back on, one of those moments that we reflect on, 
that we look to for encouragement. You see, because every time that I look at my son, every time that I pick him up, every time that I say his name, Jack, which means God is gracious, I'm reminded of God's goodness and mercy and care for my family. As the music team comes up, the reality is this. We're all going to face unexpected hardships in our lives at some point. We're all going to face something hard, something unexpected. Maybe multiple times, multiple points. And unfortunately, they're not always going to end with good news. So ask yourself, what ha- when that happens in your life, what are you going to turn to in order to get through it? How will you, what will you hold on to when life is spinning and circling and spiraling out of control? How will you handle it? You see, like I said, in my own experience, the only thing that truly sustains us is a relationship with Jesus. What do we cling to when the unexpected happens? Cling to the King, the name above all names, the one in whom our hope is. Cling to him, and he will sustain you. Amen.